Hey, I'm Terry Hilgers, and welcome to JFC. Thanks for spending part of your weekend with us. Before we get into the teaching, we want to take a minute to tell you about who we are and some of the things we have coming up. Jubilee Fellowship Church is one church meeting in four different locations across the South Denver area, and our mission statement is simple, to plant churches and make disciples. You'll notice some people wearing a How Can I Help badge. They are the people that can help answer any questions that you might have, from finding out to where to drop your children off to getting your free latte. Just find one of these friendly people and they can point you in the right direction. For more information about anything you've heard today, visit us online for quick updates about what's going on here at JFC. Enjoy your time with us this weekend. Welcome all of our campuses, not just uh, right here at Lone Tree, but uh, Highlands Ranch and Castle Rock, Lakewood, those that are live streaming, those that um, are part of our church, however you're a part of it, whether you get this later in the future or whether you're live streaming it directly right now, however you're a part of it, we want to welcome you and thank you for being a part of the greater JFC community. A couple of housekeeping items to remind you. I want to thank you for your giving towards the flood relief in uh, our state. If you still want to be a part of that, it's not too late. You can do that. And if you want to participate, the easiest way that you can do that is to uh, coordinate that with your campus pastor. So, for instance, if you're watching at Lakewood, you'd go to Pastor Evan. Uh, If you're at Highlands Ranch, uh, talk to Bob. Castle Rock, you talk to DJ. And here you talk to Marcus. Um, And really, if you're just like you're new and you're not sure who those people are, find a person who looks like they know something. Grab them, ask them, and uh, they will will help direct you where you need to go. But thank you for your giving towards that. Also, uh, this weekend, all campuses are getting this uh, via the video. We are a video venue, um, and that's how we feel like God's given us our part for the kingdom of God and how we're leveraging uh, our church in our city. But this weekend, um, we're in Israel. So uh, pray for us and bless us, bless the nation. Thank you for your concern for the nation, for your giving towards the nation that allows us to be able to uh, take such um, opportunity to, to bless our people there and bless the ministries there and, and be able to be there. And we just wanted to thank you for that, but be praying for us and we'll be back um, with you uh, in the next week or so. Okay, if you grab your notes, we'll jump into it. It's a brand new series that we start today called Epicenter. And uh, here's in your notes, you'll see it right there. I thought maybe the best way to explain the title would be to look at the meaning of it. So I just pulled up an uh, online dictionary and uh, looked at the word epicenter. If you follow along right there, there are two uh, definitions for it. Now, here's our deal. When we were at our teaching team talking about this series and what we wanted to see happen, really what the next step is beyond the series we just finished, 2028 and Discipleship, we didn't feel like, um, okay, that was, a, that was a message for then and there. Let's move on to something else. We think the message of discipleship and really the greater message uh, this year, 2013, on believe, it all sort of fits together. So all of our messages we want to dovetail, to fit together, to complement each other, not to work. Um, well, Jesus said a house divided against itself can't stand. So everything that we teach, we want to be able to flow together in one theme that talks about how to live a life 
that God calls us to live and, and how to embrace what God has for us. So uh, as we were planning and talking and coming up with this new series, uh, I think it was Pastor Marcus who threw out the idea that it was an epicenter. So we just looked that up to make sure that we were on point with it. And in your notes right here, here's the two definitions uh, that, that talk about epicenter. Number one, this was the main one, it's a point directly above the true center of disturbance from which the shockwaves of an earthquake apparently radiate. So I'm sure if you've ever seen on the television, say California or someplace in the world gets an earthquake, they call the epicenter ground zero, the place that it happens. And then from there, it radiates out. The shockwaves radiate out. So we're using it with the idea that if Christ were the epicenter of your life, where and when, there, there should be a distinct point in contact where you came into the knowledge of who Jesus is, and it should be a, a boom factor. It shouldn't be a whimper. It shouldn't be something that you can't remember or you're not quite sure about or it's wishy-washy. There should be a point in contact in time where you came into to being with the living Christ, and that's what the word epicenter means. Now, the second meaning is probably the one that I felt like fit our series and what we're trying to talk about a little bit better, and in your notes, it just says a focal point as, as of activity or the center of something. So using the idea that an epicenter is the point of activity or the center of something, I put down these two thoughts, and here's where I would go with the idea of epicenter today. What is the epicenter of your life? Everybody in here has one. You've got something that's the center of activity in your life. The reason that you do what you do. The reason that you get out of bed in the morning, and if you're like, well, it's the alarm clock, that's the wrong reason to get out of bed. That should not be the epicenter of your life. What, what is the thing that motivates you? Underlying, if, if, if you didn't get paid, if we take it with the idea that, um, that, that what you do with your life is based on what you get paid for, how about this? If you didn't get paid, what would you still do? What would you still be involved with? What would you give yourself to? What would still interest you? What would still uh, make you tick? What would still motivate you? What would still uh, make you curious? What would, what would get your, your imagination going? What's the epicenter of your life? Everybody has one. Everybody's got something that's the focal point of your life. For some of us, it was uh, something that happened to us, maybe in a negative sense or maybe in a positive sense. You recognize an epicenter, we're, we're going to preach Christ as the epicenter of a believer's life. But you recognize that many people in the room this morning, Christ is an epicenter, but not maybe the epicenter. Maybe it was something that happened to you as a child something somebody did to you that was in a negative sense, and that's motivated you for how you live your life in a negative sense. Does that make sense? Or, or maybe it was in a positive sense, uh, perhaps college was your epicenter, or your job was your epicenter, or your spouse was your epicenter, or whatever, a, a health issue. Anything can be the epicenter. We're going to teach this as Jesus being the epicenter of your life. So I just asked the question, maybe, maybe think inside right now, what is the epicenter of my life? What motivated me? What's, what's, got my, what's captured my attention? What makes me do what I do? Maybe that's the, the question asked. And then the second thought builds off of the first one. What if Christ was the epicenter of your life? What would your life look like? Can you imagine for a minute? Maybe you're sitting here going, I know exactly what it would be like. I'm doing today what I'm doing because Christ is the epicenter of my life. Well, maybe, maybe I would try to talk to that person and enhance that, or maybe I'd speak to the person this morning who can't identify that. What if Jesus was the epicenter, the center of your life? What if everything you did radiated from a relationship with him? What if all of your motivation, what if the reason you got out of bed this morning or tomorrow morning for some of you, what if the reason you got out of bed tomorrow morning was because Christ is the epicenter of your life? Because he's the driving force, he's the focus, he's, the, he's the, the thing that's enchanting you, that's got your imagination, that has your attention. Well, I think in my mind, uh, if I were to go through the scriptures, I mean, there's obvious, if you think about Jesus, 
and we use him as the example. In just a moment, I'll tell you why we should use him as the example. But if you use him as the example in a person's life, there, there are lots of people in the Bible where Christ came in contact with them, and boom, it was an epicenter. One that, that captures my imagination was Zacchaeus, Luke 19, 8 and 9, talks about Zacchaeus. He was a wee little man. How I many remember that? Yeah. So, so, and nobody looked down on that right there either. That's a, it's a powerful thing. What do they say? It's not the size of the dog in the fight. It's the size of the fight in the dog that matters. That's what matters. So here, here's the, so Zacchaeus, the Bible says, uh, Jesus was coming to his town. Zacchaeus was short and he couldn't see past the crowd. So he climbed a tree. And the Bible says, when Jesus got there, and I, I find that interesting. It doesn't say when Jesus got to the tree. It doesn't say when Jesus reached Zacchaeus. It says when Jesus got there, there's the epicenter. There is wherever you meet Christ at. The there is different for all of us. Jesus comes to us wherever we are. In, for Zacchaeus, he was up a tree, right? Without a paddle, but he was up a tree, whatever. So he, 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 wherever he was, that's where Jesus met him at. And, and it, there was an impact in Zacchaeus' life. So you remember Jesus looked up at Zacchaeus when he got there. And he said, Zacchaeus, come down. I'm going to eat lunch with you today. And so Jesus went to Zacchaeus' house. They have a feast. Zacchaeus invites all of his tax-collecting friends. And they're sitting there and they're enjoying themselves. Here was the epicenter. At the end of the meal, Zacchaeus stands up. And this is what he proclaims to everybody in his hearing. Everyone I'm, uh, that I've stolen from, I'm going to give back seven times the amount. What an interesting thing to, I mean, look, he, they're just having lunch. Jesus isn't talking to him about stealing. He's not talking to him about the way to live life. He's just meeting with him. He's just hanging out with him. Here's the factor. When you meet the living Christ, it's an epicenter in your life. It changes. It's not a wishy-washy, I think I met Jesus, or I think I know. If you met the living Christ, it changes everything. Hey, repentance happens in a moment. Life change can happen in a moment. Direction, refocus, what you're doing with your time and how you're doing it and what motivates you. Everything can change at that epicenter. Do you get it? I mean, with him, it wasn't a slow, like, well, maybe tomorrow I'll think about all the stuff that I've done. The guy stands up and just tells everybody, I'm changing right now. Jesus is the epicenter. And so we're preaching then, what would that be like? What would a person's life look like who had Jesus as the epicenter? So I put under the transition point right here, Jesus is our model for how to live life. Now, I want to read something to you. If you, if you brought your Bible, and I hope that you did, I always tell people, look, we make it easy for you by writing notes. We make it easy for you by putting scriptures up. But you should still always bring your Bible. In fact, uh, I tease about this. If you're praying, like, where's the best place I could ever bring my Bible to? Church. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So, uh, Ephesians chapter 4, uh, verse 13, um, says, says this. Paul is teaching uh, the church at Ephesus, and they're talking about, um, they're talking about discipleship. They're talking about a church becoming what it's supposed to become. And then Paul writes these words in verse 13 that's, that's really powerful. He says, until we all, speaking of the entire church, until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God, and we become mature, now look at this, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. So here's what Paul is saying to us and to the church at large. Our aim is that we all come after one person. We're not trying to look like a pastor. We're not trying to look like a denomination. We're not trying to, to, to be this to people or be that. We are supposed to aim our lives at Christ 
And we're all supposed to grow up and become mature in the fullness of who he is. So, so here's what I would say then, if that's true for you, if you can embrace that scripture right there, then Jesus for every believer is the focus or the model for how a person is to live life. Yes or no? So he's not just another man. He's not just a good idea. He's not just a thought. He's the model for how a believer is supposed to live their life. Now, if you're here this morning, you're not a believer. I get it. You can model your life after anybody you want to. But if you're a believer, it should narrow it down very quickly right here. You want to look like Christ look like. All right, so then I, I would take that thought and I would say, what is it that Jesus modeled his life after? What did Jesus look like? What are we supposed to be doing? So I came up with a couple things here I thought I would talk to you about today. The first one is he was always connected to his father. So if you're a believer and Christ is your model, then your job is to be connected to the father. All right, so, so let me throw this out. Uh, John 5, 19. Jesus is talking to uh, the religious leaders of the day. He, they ask him a question. He gives them this answer. I tell you the truth, the son can do nothing by himself. Okay, say it again. I think, I think sometimes people have the idea that Jesus, because he was God, whatever he woke up and decided to do, that was it for the day. And that's not how he lived his life. He was not a rogue agent. He was not a freelance artist. He didn't just wake up and whatever happened, happened. He was pre-planned. Get that. He, he, he only was going to do what he saw the father do, and he was only going to say what he heard his father say. He was not going to respond out of himself. Let me just ask you a question. Look at me real quick. All campuses, all people. How good would it be if you never responded just out of yourself? How good would it be to always respond from what the father said or what the father did? How much control would you have in life? How much trouble do we get in because we respond from ourselves? Just a, just a thought. Okay, so he goes, he goes like this. Jesus gave him the answer. I tell you the truth, the son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees his father doing because whatever the father does, the son does also. All right, I, I've taught this before. Let me say it one more time. So if you sit here right now and you're like, okay, uh, Jesus can, he, he can do whatever God does. He can live his life like that. He can act like that because he was God. He, of course he could do it. He was perfect. He was God, and we're not. So how can we ever measure up to that? Well, two things. First, the Bible tells us we're supposed to measure up to Jesus. Yes? We just read that in Ephesians. The second thing is this. The message of Jesus is never, look what God can do. Now, that is the message of God. When God does something, we can't, we can't. Well, I can do that. He's God. But Jesus is God in the flesh. I, this is divinity. One half of him is fully all God. One half of him is all man. He's flesh. He's human. He feels what we feel. He knows what we know. He's tasted what we taste. He's experienced what the Bible says he did that so that he can have sympathy for us. He relates to us. All right, here's my point. The message of Christ is not look what God can do. It's look what a man in right relationship with his father can accomplish. That's the, that's the message. That's where we want to live our life from, a person in right relationship with his father. So the message of Jesus isn't look what God can do. It's look what a man in right relationship with the father can do. All right, here's my thought. Many times when we teach, and I do this, I, I, now I, I know it's come full circle. I've watched our pastors who do weddings use this in weddings. I've watched the guys on our teaching team take this now and use it in the teaching team. I've seen people in conversations with other people trying to describe this. And, and here's what I do. God gave this to me years ago. It, it's not necessarily the deepest teaching in the world, but it may be the most truthful. If you want to go this way, you've got to go this way. 
Now, I always say for the, the CD, that messes people up. What is this way versus that way? If you want to be able to live life horizontally, you want to relate to people the right way, you want to respond to people the right way, you want to live the right way, then you've got to live your life vertically in order to be able to go horizontally. And what happens to most people is life happens at such a rapid pace that we end up living our Christian lives, our spiritual lives. We try to live it out this way and then respond to God this way. And it's backwards. You can't, you can't live your life with everything around you affecting your spiritual life and then you try to go to God. You go to God first and you live your life this way connected first so that you know how to respond to people like this first. Does that make sense? So so many believers are living their life from the earth and then trying to go to heaven, here's what the Lord's prayer was. On the earth as it is. In heaven. heaven. So we're supposed to go this way first to even know what it looks like this way. I wonder how many of us are living our lives this way based on the tyranny of the urgent or based on the fact that we just have to be whatever we have to be during that day. We live it all this way and then we try at the end of the day to go this way with God. And I would say to you, it doesn't work well that way. So the way I wrote it in my notes, here's, here's a better way to say it. And I think maybe this makes a little more sense. It's under the thought point. Vertical allows and enhances the horizontal. Okay, so, so here's, here's the truth. We're going to live our lives out no matter what we do. We can't lock ourselves in a closet and only connect this way. Now, too many people are like, oh, no, that's exactly what I'm trying to do. That's wrong. That's not how you're supposed to live life. You don't disconnect yourself from... Jesus said this, occupy until I return. Occupy. Be about your father's business. But how about this? How do you know what your father's business is unless you've gone this way first and then you live it out this way second? And I, just, I would just say to you, so most people go, okay, I agree with that. Amen to that. Yes, I'm into that. He, the tyranny of the urgent, I guarantee you, directs most people's lives. This way is where all the attention, all the effort, all the energy goes, and God gets what's left over when we're done. Or when we're in crisis, or when this way hasn't worked out well, so now we run this way. I'm just going to submit to you, this is life. Live it this way so that you can live it this way. So that you can be productive, so you can be what God wants you to be. All right, so then here, if Jesus is our model always connected to the Father. I wrote down in the notes how much of our lives are lived unsurrendered. Not because we don't want to be surrendered and not because we're not like, hey, I want to do what God wants me to do. I want to measure. I don't think anybody that's here uh, hearing the message today is going to reject the idea that I want to be like Jesus. Unless you're just like, man, I'm not a believer. But even as a non-believer, here's what I know. Statistically, most people don't have a problem with Jesus. They have a problem with the church. Most people embrace the idea of Christ. Even if they don't believe in him, they think he was a good teacher. They think that what he had to say were good things. Yes or no? They think that what he taught was, okay, so I'm just taking it at that basis. Most people don't have trouble with Jesus. They have trouble with how the church has lived out Jesus. That's what they reject. All right, so, so here's the, the thought. Most people hearing the message right now, they're not going to reject the idea. Yeah, it's supposed to look like Christ. But how much of our lives are unsurrendered simply because we don't live this way first, knowing what God wants? We live it out this way, trying to figure it out as we're going. You can't do it that way. An unsurrendered life is not a person who's in rebellion. I would not, I, that, I, maybe you could find that definition. I would say an unsurrendered life is a person who just simply doesn't know. So they end up living it this way. That's not in surrender. That's just doing what you need to do. That's just surviving. Maybe there's the word. How many Christians are surviving? Getting along, making it through. So hey, maybe let me take it down. Ask the question, does God just want you to survive or does he want you to thrive? 
Does he want you to make it or does he want you to prosper? Does he want you to just sort of like, okay, I got through it, or is it a planned success that's supposed to happen? So I would just say, of course, I think we all embrace the idea there's got to be more to it than just making it through. Yeah, but unless this is the connection, you don't know this way. So I, I think in terms of most of what I have to do in my life, not even as a pastor, but as a husband or as a father, a grandfather, a neighbor, whatever it is, if I don't go, if I don't go vertically first, I don't even have the reserve to deal with people horizontally. Anybody else like that? So I find myself, it's not normally, so, so Jesus, uh, Paul, by Jesus, commands husbands to love their wives like Christ loves the church. I, I've used the example before in teaching about marriage. You can tell someone, love like Christ loves you. Here's the thought. How do you give what you don't have? So it, it's not, I, I don't know how to explain it exactly. I guess I would go this way. It's not that people are unwilling to do it. But the example that I always give, if, if you want $100, uh, you know, so Chris wants, she needs something. John, give me $100. It could be in my heart to give her the money. It could be my, my sole desire. I want to do, that's not the question. I want to do it. But when I reach in my pocket, if all I have are car keys. Right. Yeah, listen, so my desire is to do it, but my ability is completely hindered based on what I have to give. Is that, is that just not a principle? Okay, everybody in the room. So we want, we want to love. If you're married, you want to love your spouse. You want to love unconditionally, yes? Yeah. You want to love the way that God loves you. He loves you unconditionally. He, lo he doesn't go, I love you if or I love you when. He just loves us. Yeah. Gives us the beginning to, to, to start again and to try again and to be forgiven and okay, all those things. We want to do that, but if we don't have the, if it's not in us, we, can't, we can want to, but we can't give it. All right, come back to this. The only way that you can give that kind of love is to experience that kind of love. True? So you can go like, oh, I just, I wish I had that kind of love. Or I pray that, no, you've got to experience that kind of love so that you even know what it is to give it to somebody else. That's what this is, to be connected to the Father. The, the prayer, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be the name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on the earth as it is in heaven. So I've taught this now for two or three years, straight on, the question to ask ourselves is, what does it look like in heaven to know what it's supposed to look like on the earth? So here's not the question. Well, it's a fallen world. We can't expect that. That's not the Lord's prayer. Jesus never made allowances for that. Yes? No? So maybe, maybe the life we live is so short of what God wanted just because there's not even the faith to believe that simply that on earth as it is in heaven. So I ask the question, is there cancer in heaven? But there's cancer on the earth. Then how are we supposed to pray? Yeah, one person. There's a confusing issue. Well, I, maybe God's using it to teach somebody something. Give me a break. The father works in opposition to the son. The son takes sickness off everybody that he meets, but the father puts it on. A house divided against itself can't. So the Father can't work in opposition to the Son. If the Son heals everyone who comes to Him for healing, God doesn't put sickness on anybody to teach them anything. But can God use anything? Of course. He can use anything. Look, He, he can win with a pair of twos. Some of you are like, I, I don't know if I get that. Okay. He can win with a pair of twos. He can win with, with... He can turn any evil around for good. 
but that's not his will. Is there poverty in heaven? But there's poverty on the earth. Our response to evil should be the same as Christ's response to evil. He was not a coward. He was not fearful. He was willing to put himself in between the one being broken versus the one who were in judge. How about the woman being judged in adultery? So I hit it in a second here, but Jesus, he didn't condone her actions, but he loved her, didn't he? He found a way to put himself in between the religious people of the day and the woman. Without condoning what she was doing, he helped her find the path of life. God, we don't even know how to respond. The church, here's when I make the statement, people don't have a problem with Christ, but they have a problem with the church. It's because the church doesn't know what it's supposed to look like, so we go off with religious best intentions. And religious best intentions never get it done. So here's the, the religious response to the woman caught in adultery was to kill the woman. That was the religious response. Moses said in the law to stone such a woman. What do you say? I mean, unless he knew what the father knew, how does he even answer that question? The pressure to conform to the religious institution would have guided Christ's words. If he didn't know what the Father wanted, and that outweighed the pressure of the religious institution. We can't change anything on this earth, even what the church has done, without knowing what God wants first. Dang it, that's good. That, that was worth the price of admission. All right, now, so let me, let me just move to the second thing. So connected to the Father is one. Two, let me talk about the visible heart of the Father and spend some time on this. John 14, the second part of verse 9. So Jesus answers again to questions being asked him. Uh, the question being asked him was, hey, do you know what the Father looks like? Can you show us the Father? How can we see the Father? So Jesus then answers them this way. Anyone who has seen me has seen what? The Father. So if you see Christ, you see the Father. Remember, here, here's my second point. Let me talk to you about the visible heart of the Father. How do we know what the visible heart of the Father looks like? Jesus said it. If you've seen me, you've seen who? So you want to know what the Father's heart looks like? Look at Jesus. You want to know how God feels? What did Jesus do? You want to know how God thinks about a situation? How God responds to any activity on the earth? Just look at how Jesus handled his life. That's what God thinks. Jesus said this, I never do anything that I haven't seen the Father do, and I never say anything that I didn't hear the Father say. So everything Jesus did is to model out what the Father did. Yes? Yep. All right, so anything that he handles himself over, the way he responds to sin, that's what we're trying to live up to. The way he responded to people who were searching for him, that's what we're supposed to live up to. The way he responded to questions or to people who were doubting or how about the man who came to him and said, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. Right. He had the perfect response to that. So the visible heart of the Father then is seen in the Son. John 12, 45, just another uh, corroborating verse, another verse that builds upon the last one. When he looks at me, he sees the one who sent me. So we look upon Christ, we're seeing God, we're seeing what God wanted to do. All right, so I phrased it this way. Do you ever want to know how God thinks or feel about fill in the blank? How does God feel about divorce? He hates it, but what did he do with divorced people? <laughs> so hard, the cliche is, hate the sin and love the sinner. We haven't done that well. We quote that 
We haven't modeled that. Jesus had a way of living it out so that the one who was involved in the sin didn't live their life condemned, were put back on the path of life and restored. Yes? No? Greed? He had a way to do that without condoning what the person was doing. So he didn't, he didn't tacitly approve in order to embrace. He could embrace while saying this is wrong. There's an art right there. All right, how does God feel about, how does God feel about politics? How did Jesus respond to them? It's a good question right there. So, hey, how about this? Much of the church's stance over politics in the last 20 years was shaped by people who were not in contact with what God said about it. It was their own political affiliation and association that directed much of the preaching that happened over politics. So the political things became more about a particular part. How many of you think we get to heaven, you'll find a political elephant or donkey that measures out where you go in heaven? So like, no, it was the green party for me. You won't find that either. So you'll find one, a lion. Yes, no, the lion party, the tribe of Judah. He'll align everybody under. Okay, so, 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 so pastor, politics don't matter. Politics do matter. So how would you vote on politics? All right, taking this message literally, how did God feel about morality? Was he for it or against it? Okay, so then find people who get biblically-based morality. Well, we can't find anybody. Then where are the people in the church? <laughs> Why don't, where are our young people to rise up and think that that's a noble way to spend my life trying to change things for my society? So I, I don't know if I believe that way. Dude, the very freedom that allows me to say this and for you to disagree with me was because of people getting politics. True? Hmm. <laughs> I'll get some email on that one. Okay, so I put down then as the illustration, John 8, the woman caught in adultery. So I just always think that that's just such an interesting one. Now going through it just very quickly... She's caught in adultery. The Bible says they caught her in the very act of adultery. Here's my question. How did they catch her? Normally, adultery is done behind closed doors, not in a public square. Yes? No? So the very act of adultery gives us the idea that it was the sexual act that was taking place. It was a setup. They're looking for a way to test Jesus. That's how it begins. They're looking for a way to test Jesus. So they find a woman caught in the very act of adultery. All right, where's the man? The man's not even mentioned in the story. She's committing adultery by herself? <laughs> Pretty sure that's not it. All right. So it's a setup. The man's not even tagged. The whole thing is to trap Jesus. So I wonder, maybe this, how do I, how do I go about this? Um, maybe society at large would not be the way to look at this picture. Let's go this way. How much, using Christ as the model, we're supposed to live our lives that way. How much does the devil try to trap us and set us up? With situations. Uh, with, with the old, well-worn path in our life. You, you recognize all of us have a well-worn path that the devil knows how to use effectively for us. So if I talk to you about the area that I stumble in... You sit here and you go, I, I don't, why do you stumble? Why would that be a problem for you? Because that's my well-worn path. Tell me yours and I can mock you. 
So the, the issue is not our ability to mock each other, it's to recognize the devil finds the well-worn path in all of our lives. And he uses it effectively, yes or no? Yeah. So our, our response to that normally is after. What to do after he's made his way in. If we were connected this way, what if the Father used what he tells us, prophetic things that he tells us, in order to defeat the enemy before it ever starts? So I, I just I'm throw this out to you. Um, our church, I, I hope you recognize this. I will say it again for the umpteenth time in 15 years. You're in a full gospel church. What's a full gospel church? We believe that all the gifts of the Spirit are active, available, and present in a believer's life. And if you want them, you can have all of them. He gives good gifts to men, the Bible says. So they're back. All right, well, I don't see those things going on on a weekend. We don't feel like everything we know we have to do in one service on a weekend. And thank God we don't have to do that. If we did, we'd have to have a show for you every weekend. Okay, five minutes now, we're all going to prophesy. Five minutes, we're all speaking in tongues. Five minutes for healing. Five minutes for words of knowledge. Yes or no? So I wish we would do that. That's chaos. So when do we do it? All during the week. There are classes all during the week for how to prophesy, both publicly and privately, for how to pray, for how to do spiritual warfare, for how to deal with the enemy. All of those things are available. Get involved and find out. So, but on a weekend, so what's on? It's direction on a particular thing we're teaching that weekend right then and there. Want to go deeper? You can. All right. So where are you going with this right here? Trying to come and teach this message. Man, so much of what I'm trying to say to you, the gifts of the Spirit, they're available. They're active. God speaks to us prophetically, not just to, to tell us things like, ooh, we're predicting the future. Much of the prophetic things that God gives to us, like I'll get words almost weekly. Something that someone has felt from the Holy Spirit that's supposed to be a direction for our church or something specifically for me. My, my job is to decide if it's from God or not. That's my job. I've got to hear whether or not it's from God. But here's, here's the point. Almost weekly, I get stuff like that. Some of it is specifically given to me so that I can defeat the enemy before he ever gets activated in my life. Much of what we do is lived after that. We're trying to respond to all the cleanup after the flood. What if God told you where to build your house so that you missed the flood? That's not personal for anybody that was caught in a flood last week. That's not what I'm talking about. Spiritually, what if God told you ahead of time, here's, don't do business with this person? Or do business with this person? What if God told you ahead of time, hey, avoid this? Or embrace this? What if it was all in relationship the enemy is forming a weapon against you. Here's what I want you to do. You don't even have to deal with the weapon. Do this, and you'll go right around the weapon. No weapon formed against you will prosper. So here's what we're doing. We end up dealing with the weapon, and we're like, God, break the weapon. What if God just, I'll take you right around it. Or I won't, I won't even let it get traction in your life. If you do this, the devil won't even find a foothold to put that thing in your life. How many of you think that would be a better way to live life? You know, all right, so how does God feel about marriage? He's for it. We just said that. But he's not just for it because that doesn't really help us. He gives specific things that we're to do to make it work. 
What does God feel about church? He's for it, but that's not enough. He gives us specific things that a church is supposed to do. Did you get it? All right, so, so then the idea here, Jesus becomes the visible heart of the Father. We go back and we looked at how he handled life to know. So do you wonder how God thinks about, fill in the blank, whatever your blank is right there, just look at Jesus. That's how you'll know. How does God feel about a person caught in adultery? He's not for adultery, but he loves the person. Do you agree with that? Yep. He desperately loves that person. I, I, what if we were able to see the person rather than the stuff the person does? I, God, here's, here's all of our campuses are shaped towards the idea, here's what we're trying to accomplish. We want to build a place where people can come and experience the way Jesus did it. So rather than being caught up in all the stuff and trying to respond to all the stuff, what if we desperately loved the person? What if that was our first motivation? How do we rescue this person? Or what if we thought this way? What in the world trapped a person in this? What if we saw it as a person trapped rather than the person who's willfully trying to disobey God? A person who was deceived or a person who was fooled. Would we, would we have more mercy for a person that way? I think that's how Jesus pretty much responded to most people, seeing them under the delusion. I mean, he came to proclaim truth. Do you get it? It's our model then for prayer on earth as it is in heaven. If we know what that looks like for the Father, then we know what it's supposed to look like for our lives. That, that really is a simple message. But here's the deal. To live it out takes more than good intentions right now. It takes the power of the Holy Spirit. So if I go, how many of you want to live out the Lord's Prayer? You want to do it? Eight of us. Let me try one more time. How many of you wanted that? No, I'm going to get response. I'm going to get it. Okay, I'm preaching for response. Give it to me. Amen. <laughs> Phony. Here, here's the... <laughs> we want that, but it's not as simple. Everybody here wants to do it. It's not as simple as just wanting it, is it? To live it out in the nasty now and now, is it not the hardest thing to do in life? Here's what I'm going to say. Connected this way gives you margin, energy, know-how, want to, ability. To not be connected this way, you end up in the world, you have good intentions. But they're religious in their nature. And I just talked about in the beginning of the message, the church, without the direction of the Father does its best to live out its good religious intentions, which can result in an inquisition at any moment. You know an inquisition didn't start with people trying to go, let's see the devil conquer the earth. It was people who wanted, we need to get sent out. Do you get what I'm saying? Hmm. Hebrews 1.3, Jesus is the express image of God. He's the exact likeness. 
He's the fullness of the Father. Jesus is every. Jesus is not a thing we talk about in our church. It's the thing we talk about at our church. He's not an idea. He's the only idea. He's not a model. He's the only model. He's everything. Maybe this is a better way to say it. What would be the takeaway to begin this new series? This is the best wording I could think of. Jesus is perfect theology. So think about it for a moment. Theology is the discussion or the understanding or the knowledge that we have about God. Yes? No? In his briefest mention, that's what theology is. Okay, let me tell you what real theology is. Jesus is perfect theology. You want to know who God is? Look at Jesus. You want to know what the church was supposed to look like? Look at Jesus. What are we supposed to aim ourselves to? Jesus. That makes sense? Oh, man. So what a big concept. All right, here's where this series goes in the next several weeks. So how do we walk this out? How do we make it a reality? How do we do this? It's how to make him the center of everything that we believe, the focus, the epicenter of our life, the epicenter of why we do what we do, how we do what we do, what our lives look like, what we aim them for, what our families look like, what our marriage looks like, how we spend our money, how we spend our time. Not, not what I do, but who I am, if that makes sense. Who I am. At the very core of, of me, who I am that directs what I do, if that, if that makes sense to you. So that's where we'll head with this. So let's just pray. Father, take, take this message in the beginning of what we're trying to do. As wide as this message is, as... as, as um, as open as we try to make it for the first message to invite everybody, whosoever will may come. God, uh, attract, draw, bring people into it. And then, Father, as we step along this path, as we learn more, as we climb higher, as we endeavor to, to pursue you and to go after you into the fullness of what you have, help us, God. To, to It's only by the activity of the Holy Spirit. It's not just us wanting this. The work of the Holy Spirit in us is what makes it possible. Christ in you. God working in you to will and to do for His glory. So God work in us and make that practical and make that possible. And we open ourselves up to you, Father, this week as people find themselves, even with some of the things I said, maybe they battle the enemy this week. Maybe they find their lives, God, uh, just so the tyranny of the urgent, so directing their emotions and their thoughts and how they feel about all situations. God, change that. So that our feelings and our thoughts and our words and our actions are directed by our time with you first and then lived out in this world. God, thank you for doing that. Thank you for caring enough to help us and to shape that. And I pray it now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.